Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. While this episode is for everyone, it's especially for those of you who have struggled to read more than a paragraph since your person died. Grief takes up a lot of energy and focus, two things we often need to sit down and read a book, especially a book about grief. Eleanor Haley and Lisa Williams are familiar with this struggle, both from their personal experiences of grieving the death of a parent and their professional ones supporting others in their grief. Many of you already know about Eleanor and Lisa from the What's Your Grief community they started back in 2012. They've written hundreds, at this point maybe thousands, of articles about grief and loss. They were also guests on Grief Out Loud way back in 2015, on episode 22, when we talked about what it's like becoming a parent when your parent has died. Today, they're back talking about their new book, What's Your Grief? Lists to help you through any loss. Eleanor and Lisa found pretty consistently that the most popular posts on What's Your Grief were the ones they wrote in list form, breaking down big layered concepts like guilt and significant days and ways to ask for help into long form lists made it easier for people to take in the information. So they made a whole book of these lists and the lists are designed to share information about grief, explore the different range of grief experiences people might have, and provide ideas for coping with loss and grief. Eleanor and Lisa are super informative, fast talking, and funny. So we get to a lot in this conversation, but I promise we speak in full paragraphs, not just lists. Ready? Eleanor and Lisa, thank you so much for coming back on Grief Out Loud. I think it's been like 50 years since you were here. So it was like 2016. It's really, uh, it's nice to have you back. Yeah, thank you. It feels like 50 years for sure. A lot has happened. <laughs> COVID years are like dog years, so it really extends the time. So for listeners who maybe don't know you or haven't heard your last episode on Grief Out Loud, give us a quick catch up on like who you are and why you like to write books about grief. <laughs> um, I can take this one, Lisa. Um, so we are What's Your Grief? We are a two-person organization. About 10 years ago, uh, we started a website called whatsyourgrief.com. Lisa and I uh, met working at an organization where we provided grief support to people at the time of a loved one's death, so often due to sudden and unexpected death. Um, And we worked with people at that time. And then for about two years afterwards, we would work with families who wanted to stay in contact with us. So we were supporting all types of people from all throughout the state of Maryland who had experienced all different types of loss at all different points in their grief. And so we were really trying to find a lot of different types of resources to support people. Uh, I'll also share that both Leeds and I had experienced the death of a parent in early adulthood. So we were always looking at the resources available through two lenses, one, our mental health lens and two, our own personal lens. And so we weren't always finding what we wanted. This was 
10 years ago. So things have really changed, thankfully, in those 10 years in terms of grief resources. But at the time, there wasn't a lot, especially not online. So we just started writing. This was back when blogs were still cool. <laughs> uh, this was originally a blog that we just wrote some really long form. We thought about of them as like more like explainer essays about grief. Mm -hmm. And over the years, it just grew to a place where we had about, I think we have like 600 articles now on the website. And a lot of other things have grown from that, different communities that we have, creative initiatives that we do. And so we really um, actually never intended to write a book about grief. We just were like, oh, we're just going to keep plugging along on our website. But when the right person approached us about doing it, um, I, I guess a little over a year ago, we thought, you know what, we've written so much on this website. It would be, it would be good to take the things that we think are really important for someone entering grief and distill them down into a, a way that a person can really tangibly hold and flip through um, some of these concepts that we just feel are really helpful and important for people who are experiencing grief. And so this new book, What's Your Grief? lists to help you through any loss. Lisa, Eleanor just sort of briefly hinted at this, but like, why a book of lists when it comes to grief? Yeah, I, I think we, there's a little bit of hesitation because when we were considering this, I think the idea of something as vast and devastating as grief being tackled in lists feels a little bit of an odd choice. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think it was really informed by our writing on our website over the years. We heard so much feedback from people that would say, I lost a loved one. I was going through grief. People gave me dozens of books and I was so overwhelmed by books. I couldn't even crack them open. I would just get overwhelmed. And when I found your website, what was so helpful was that it was easily digestible. I could kind of find things where I could pop in and out, get a little bit of information. And we found that some of our most popular articles on our site were articles that we had written in lists. And when we say lists, we don't mean like a bullet pointed list. We mean, obviously, lists that have a lot of information with each bullet point. But where we think we have always tried to divide things up into manageable chunks. And I think for a lot of people who are grieving, who are struggling with focus, with attention, with being able to absorb information, we felt like that this format actually is really good for that. It makes it feel more manageable. And by doing it in lists, we also created a book where you can read it from cover to cover, but also you can just bounce around through it just like you could bounce around through our website and kind of figure out what works for you, what doesn't. Each list has at the bottom recommendations of other lists in the book that are related that might be helpful. So you kind of have that flexibility with this format. Yeah. And I would also add to that. I think one thing that we always like to share with people from our own personal experience, I think, is that grief is such a big experience that is so ongoing. And so there's not going to be just one one book necessarily or one big coping tool or one big resource that helps. What you really need is a lot of little things. And so we really think that coping with grief is about taking one step at a time and finding, you know, one new insight or one new tool or one new person to talk to or having one good kind of enlightening conversation at a time to help you get to a place where you feel a little more okay over time. And so for us, it made sense to tackle something as big and overwhelming as grief one step at a time. As you were talking, Eleanor, I had this image of it takes a lot of snacks 
to get through grief, not yeah. one big feast, you know, where you just eat everything and like, phew, it's done. I got everything I need in this one dinner. It's like, oh, I need another snack. And now I need another snack. And I'm going to need snack for, snacks for years. So yes. And it's a different snack at different times, right? Sometimes you need something salty and sometimes you need something sweet, right? So the cool tools that are helping with one part of grief may not be the same tool that's going to help with another or at another point in the future. And so having all those tools in your toolbox, we think is, is really important. And so that's that's kind of why we thought about it, breaking it down in this list way. And also we wanted to offer a lot of little different tools uh, in the book. This, this is a random question because the listeners, the hard copy of the book just showed up at my house yesterday. So I'm like holding it in my hands. And was there any intention around the size of the book? It's like a little smaller than your average book. And I was like, it seems portable. So I didn't know if you had any intention behind the size of it. I don't think we did have any intention, though I will say that I like books that are the size of this book. So our publisher suggested this as a size. I don't know if they had that partially in mind. Um, but when they did, I thought, oh, that's ideal because I love books that are kind of that slightly smaller size for that reason. I like a book I can easily throw in my bag and feel like I can, you know, kind of carry around with me. So we, we didn't make a conscious decision, but they might have. Gotcha. Not to take the analogy too far, but it's like a snack-sized book in that way. So, <laughs> Let's so, keep this going. <laughs> and we're going to totally change yeah. directions now and get more into like the content of the book. And uh, early on, you talk about these 10 statements that are really common misperceptions of grief. Things like grief ends with acceptance or time heals all wounds. And, and you talk about like where those perceptions come from and things like that. And I wondered you know, as authors of this book, of people who've been supporting grief for years and dealing with your own grief, do you find yourself still getting caught by those misperceptions of grief? Or you're like, I know this isn't true on the cognitive level, but why am I still giving myself a hard time for not having whatever it might be? For sure. I We were just having a conversation about this. We have a group of grief professionals. Every month we have one meeting where the grief professionals who are also grieving get together and, and talk. And this was what a lot of the people there were sharing is that even though we're well aware of the realities of grief, and even though we know what we would say to our friends and people we're working with, our clients, people we're supporting, we still, I think, internalize those expectations that, oh, we should be better at this. We should be able to take care of everybody else and not necessarily ourselves. Uh, we, should we still really be looking back on our grief, you know, 15 years later, which is where I'm at, and having these really, really bad grief days? And we know that the answer is, yes, we should be still doing all these things. But at the same time, I do think that we internalize these ideas about how we, quote unquote, should should be in grief. So we always say to people when they're being hard on themselves, like, imagine a good friend was saying this to you, what would your response to them be, right? <laughs> and we don't always take that step to treat ourselves as well as we would treat a good friend, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Lita, has, been, has there been one that's caught you lately? It's interesting. I, I definitely get caught in these to some degree. I do think I was a little bit lucky that my my mom is Greek and in the, in the Greek culture, there's like an acknowledgement that grief is forever um, in a different way. There's a lot more memorializing. There's just a lot more openness of that. And so I think in that way, I, I do really think I've been lucky. 
I was able to, I just didn't get them ingrained in me in an early way in the same way that some other people did. Um, so I do think that that's true. I do sometimes feel like even though a huge piece of this book is about non-death loss, and that has always been really, really huge and important for us, one of the things on that list is that you know misperception that you can only grieve following a death. And though I don't think I get caught in that in general, I do sometimes for non-death losses find myself thinking, is this disproportionate? You know, I went through a divorce a few years ago and it was devastating. And I would often catch myself feeling like, oh, is this divorce grief? Is this is this too much or something? Um, because it's not a bereavement related loss. So that's one that even though I, I think it's so important that we talk more about non-death loss and that that's been a huge part for me of, you know, having a, a sibling with an addiction and dealing with other issues, that's been so important. I still find myself getting caught up there a little bit. And such a good point that, you know, oftentimes if somebody at least if somebody dies, right, the world's like, okay, you get to do this thing that starts with G, you get to grieve short period of time and don't make it too messy. But if it's a, a different type of loss where someone hasn't died, even just assigning the word grief to it is a huge lift for a lot of people and a huge leap. So I really appreciate you pointing pointing that out. Where do these misperceptions come from? Like, what are they rooted in? Besides everything? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that they they are rooted in our society in particular, and in, in it seems like everything sometimes. I personally like to take us back to the beginning of, of when we started talking about grief theory, and um, we had Freud start the conversation, but then we had almost a century of grief models that really emphasized this idea of quote-unquote grief work, where we sort of dove into our grief, worked through our grief, and we often did this according to these models via a set of stages or tasks, and then we came out on the other end. And though these theories are very nuanced, that's not always how they were applied or how we in just the general society interpreted them. So I do think, especially because the five stages became so very popular, in some way that has contributed to this idea, we have this uniform grief experience that we should be able to work through and get to an end point. So there are, of course, so many other influences, things like our family dynamics, things like our culture, um, just uh, maybe things that we even see on television and movies. But I do think that a lot of the work that we've done to sort of understand grief a little bit better has in some ways done our society a little bit of a disservice. And I would add to that, I think part of the appeal, the reason those theories caught on and became pop part of pop culture and why the five stages are so pervasive is because it takes one of the most devastating and messy human experiences, grieving, and it makes it sound like a nice, neat, tidy little story, you know, and uh, what could be better than imagining that we can take something like grief and condense it, and that we're going to find an endpoint that is acceptance. I think there's a real appeal with that. I know, you know, Bob Nehemiah, I think was the one who talks about the idea that it also mirrors the hero's journey, which is what kind of the model of narratives that we in Western culture really love of sort of 
this hero who goes through suffering and kind of fights their way through it and then comes through the other side and is kind of all the stronger and better for it. And that that really appeals to us. And unfortunately, that's not how grief, exactly how grief looks. But I think that there is, that's part of the reason these misperceptions run really deeply. You know, Lisa, something you just said about how we are drawn to neat and tidy boxes of especially something so big and overwhelming and and hard to understand as grief. And when I got to your section where you started talking about the different types of grief, things like disenfranchised grief and anticipatory grief, cumulative grief, I, it, this is just me, but I internally was like cringing a little bit. And I'm like, oh, every time we start to box up grief, why do we got to do that? And then I read the chapter and I was like, oh, this is great. Thank you. <laughs> and so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how and why is it helpful to take grief, this big thing, and like chunk it out in these little categories, both for yourselves and for the people that you support? Yeah, I, I think that labels are always risky, right? It's a double-edged sword where you feel like, oh no, now if I'm labeling something, am I trying to put somebody into a box around it? But one of the things we always tell people with types of grief is that these blend into one another, that they're not some sort of fixed thing. Really, they're these general concepts that that we've learned and applied to help people kind of organize and better understand their own experience. And I think that's the value in it is that sometimes when we describe something like disenfranchised grief, which is that experience when a person feels like society hasn't given them the permission to grieve, they haven't acknowledged the loss or the severity, that people hear that and they go, oh my gosh, I not only do I relate to this, but I feel validated to know that it has a name, that it is something that is an actual tangible thing that enough people share that I'm able to sort of have it labeled for me in this way. And that doesn't mean my grief is only disenfranchised or will always be, or, you know, it won't shift, but it helps me to maybe make sense of an aspect of my grief that I hadn't I identified before or hadn't been able to label. And I think a lot of these do this. I can specifically remember the first time I learned about the concept of ambiguous grief, which is kind of grieving someone who is still alive for various reasons. And having, a, you know, family members with substance use disorders being a part of my own story and, and learning about that, I was just like, that's it. You know, when I when my sister, you know, when her substance use got really bad, I was like, who is this stranger? Who is this person I don't even recognize? What's happened to our relationship? But I, at that point in my life, when I was a lot younger and before I'd studied anything related to mental health and grief, didn't have any language to describe that. And so I think that's why labels can sometimes be helpful is it allows us to put name to it and it in some ways validates it and normalizes it as significant when we know it's been shared by others and even given a name. Yeah. And one of the values that underlies this book for us is the need to have a book and a resource that really allows space for non-death losses, like Lisa was just talking about, ambiguous loss, grieving somebody um, who's still alive. And so I think for us, it was important to really normalize that there are all these different types of grief experiences that go beyond death loss. Death loss needs, you know, all the resources in the world, but it does have a lot of books 
deaths. And this book, I think, is certainly for people who have experienced the death of a loved one, but it hopefully can also be a resource for people who are experiencing a number of different types of losses that are related to things like the loss of a job, infertility, divorce, having a loved one who is going through something like a substance use disorder. Um, you know, we started writing this book in the midst of, of COVID. And so for us, it was just the need to have something for um, to really normalize those non-death loss experiences felt so important. And so I think that was one of the reasons why really labeling these things are important, because as we've already sort of discussed, when your loss doesn't look like what you typically expect or typically see, you don't always stop to label it as that. And so we wanted people, we wanted to really convince people that they can, they can call what they're experiencing grief. I'm really grateful just for this little bit of our conversation, because now I'm going to move forward and not cringe as much when I see categories where people start asking me about like, what's cumulative grief. And I I think I figured out what's underneath it all, which is just this visceral frustration with how hard people us, everyone has to work to justify why they're feeling what they're feeling. And that idea that if we could just call it all grief, right, then we would be at this place where there's enough permission, you mentioned the word permission, Lisa, to feel feelings when things change in our lives, or when people die, or when people leave, or when things end. Anyways, yeah, that's super helpful for me. And I'm realizing it's just the advocate in me that's like, why do we have to give it a label in order for people to be able to, one, let themselves feel their feelings and have their community respond supportively to them having their feelings? But we're not there yet. So thank you for articulating <laughs> these categories in a way that's really digestible for people. The thing that really caught me, I think it's pretty early in the book. It's one of the first lists, I think. It's like your original 64 things about grief lists. And it was, you know, this idea of the trick is figuring out how to live without answers. And so many of the common questions in grief of like, why, why me? Why my person? What if? Uh, that's a really interesting concept to me. Like, how do you help people learn to live without answers to those questions? No, I, I think that idea of living without answers, it really points to, in a lot of ways, just living with uncertainty. And so much of our world is uncertainty. So much of um, we, as human beings, we love to imagine that we have more control than we do. We love to imagine that we sort of know more about how things will go than we do. And so, so many times that search for why, why did this happen? Sometimes that um, we see oftentimes where people will get really wrapped up in specifics of, you know, waiting for autopsy reports or trying to understand what was in a person's head before a death by suicide and kind of seeking all of those things um, is often that quest for control. It's a quest for us to be able to have some sort of security and, and control and sometimes being able to pull back, and this can sound a little cliche in that uh, serenity prayer kind of way, but really pulling back and looking at what are the things that we can know and the things that we can control and what are the things that we can't know and the things that we can't control and how do we kind of put our energy and time on the, the things that we can. And sometimes that space that's being occupied by 
wondering about what we could have done differently or about, you know, what was the exact cause of death and why were they on that road at that time of day? And, you know, that occupies so much space in our minds that sometimes it actually takes away from space that we could use to create other connections to our loved one's memory and be able to connect with the things that we really most valued about them. And that space that we, for most people, want to be that person's legacy and the connection that they have to them. And so sometimes doing that work over how do we make some decisions about the where our thoughts go. And this is hard because a lot of times when we have those uncertain thoughts, our brains just want to like ruminate and spin around them and ask, you know, these, these questions over and over again. And sometimes saying, I can accept how hard it is to, to not know the answers to these things. And I can make some decisions to put my energy and my thoughts and my time and my values to my loved one, to my grief, to my life now in ways that feel consistent with what I want, what maybe they would have wanted for me and how I want to move forward. Um, I would add, this is like a really specific suggestion that may or may not be helpful to people, but something when we're talking about thinking back and asking questions and Lisa talked about maybe getting into cycles of rumination, something we often caution people to look out for is hindsight bias and counterfactual thinking. Cause sometimes we want to find answers, right? That we're, we're seeking to find answers. And sometimes with the benefit of hindsight, we'll look back and and find answers that may or may not be accurate. And those answers are sometimes answers that are really kind of condemning to ourselves, people around us, even sometimes our loved ones. So we often caution people to be careful of, of the, the meaning and the answers we're finding with the benefit of hindsight. Like most of the time we did the best we could with the knowledge we had at the time. Uh, but when we look back on it, sometimes we say, I should have known, I should have done something different. I did know, even though we really didn't. And then with counterfactual thinking, when we're wondering what might have been, we oftentimes come up with the, these ideas of you know, it's counter counter to the facts, these realities that could have existed counter to what actually exists. And sometimes we will get stuck on thinking that would have been a better reality. And when, when a loved one's died, like almost always we're going to think it's it would have been a better reality, right? That's the reality that we want um, and that we should want because because most of the time it, that comes from a place of love. Um, but also I think we can do this in many different scenarios. And I think there are often times where we can step back and say there are a lot of different outcomes. There's no way for us to have known what the outcome would have been or if that would have even been a better outcome. So I think there are many different instances, especially when we talk about non-death losses, where we engage in counterfactual thinking. Sometimes we reach these conclusions that we could have done something different and things would have been better. And we don't always know that to be the case. I hadn't thought about it from this perspective before, but when Lisa, you were talking about oftentimes this uh, like why, 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 why comes from this place of wanting to have some sense of control in a situation that feels very much outside of our control. And I was thinking we can be so focused on like, I got to control other people's behavior. I got to control my physical space, but we're not as skilled or as recognizing like, oh, maybe I can focus some of this controlling energy over like choosing where my thoughts are going. <laughs> like that seems the most out of my reach when it comes to, you know, being very skilled at controlling other things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. So my favorite section in your book, 
well, okay, I shouldn't say one of my favorite, I don't know what my absolute favorite is, is the part about the mixed up emotions that come with grief. I think of like the two things being true at the same time. You know, I wondered if you could give an example or two from your own like personal emotional mashups, greatest hits when it comes to grief. I I personally will say that I believe that this is like the one bit best and best descriptor of life after loss is just living with two mixed up realities and two mixed up emotions. It, it just almost always is the case, I feel. For me, one of the most obvious ways that this shows up in, in my personal life, and Lisa, you might have a different answer, it just through the continued bond that I have with my mother who died about 15 years ago when I was pregnant with my first child. How she was a mother to me very much has informed a lot of what has come afterwards for me and how I I, I mother, how I relate to my kids and so much of what I do in my life. And so there's an immense comfort there, an immense joy in being able to share her with my family. But where there is that joy and comfort, there's always that sadness at the same time because I, I wish that she were here. And so in those moments, they're always a mix of happy and sad. They're always a mix of bittersweet. And they're always a little bit of a mix of, of comfort and longing. Uh, and so for me, it really shows up a lot in how I continue to connect with her and continue my bond with her because that bond is a reminder of what I what I wish I still had and who I, you know, what I what I would have wanted for my life to have her here with me. So for me, that's that's like the biggest example, though. There are so many. Um, I don't know, Lisa, what would you say is the biggest one for you? You know, I think the biggest or, or the one that came to mind as soon as you said it, Jana, is one that is sort of specific, but that I see with so many other people grieving. And it is just probably the one that was hardest for me. I think the idea that we can hold deep relief after a death and also be completely and totally devastated and grieving that death completely. Um, My sister's boyfriend, who was like a member of our family, when he died, he died of an overdose. And when he died of an overdose, anyone who's been through loving somebody with a, a bad opiate disorder knows how that can be for families. And it had been so destructive and so hard and awful. And my sister was struggling with her own addiction. And I felt so much guilt and so many complicated feelings after he died about how much relief I felt. At the same time, I think about him all the time. He was one of my favorite people on the planet. And he, you know, I I look at how much I still grieve that loss so many years later and how much my whole family still does. Even now, I still feel guilt that I felt that relief, though I recognize that I you can feel those things so completely. And it's not that I was, you know, relief doesn't mean I was glad that he died. Relief was that relief that he wasn't suffering and that it was taking away a piece of our suffering through that addiction. If I could have picked how to relieve that situation, it would have been for him to have been sober and in recovery and for, you know, that situation to have resolved in a completely different way. So for me, I think that's probably been the hardest. I think another one that we we hear a lot and I think that I I personally have experienced is that also that feeling of feeling hopeless, but also hopeful at the same time. I think Lisa, just about your example with a loved one who's experiencing an addiction, there's that hope for that person, but also just the feeling of helplessness and probably hopelessness at times when, you know, no matter what you try and do, 
you can't control the situation or make it any better. And so I think about it in those situations. I also think about it when my mom was terminally sick. We knew she was going to die, but we also hoped until the day she died that she wouldn't die. Even though that might seem illogical to some people, it just, it is. And so I, I think that that's one that is really big for people. And then also something that I, I think is really sometimes important to note, we talk about like the ways we sometimes feel a little bit stronger and after a loss sometimes. Now, not everybody's going to feel that way, right? For a long time, we feel incredibly, incredibly vulnerable and, you know, everything, we even our identity, our you know, self-worth can be shattered. But a lot of people will say they get to a place where they feel a little bit stronger, but also knowing that they exist in the world in an incredibly vulnerable way that they never felt before. So they're incredibly vulnerable, but they also know they have the strength to cope with things. Um, and then one final one that I think is also sort of similar to this is people saying, I feel like my support system has been shattered and I've lost so many people, but at the same time, I have a I'm closer and have more meaningful relationships with the people who are in my life. So that sense that I'm closer than ever, but more distant than ever at the same time. So I think we see a lot of these paradoxes and I, I believe that these continue on. It's not like something that just happens in the ac acute aftermath of grief. Like this is something that I even today will step back and be like, huh, it, it it's interesting living with these two realities, but it definitely is. They're definitely there. You know, in those, you know, emotional mashups, as I call them, they're talking a lot about the emotions that come up. And those emotions have to live somewhere and they live in our bodies. And I think part of like those contradictory things catch people off guard in their grief. And I think the physicality of grief can really catch people off guard. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how does grief show up in our bodies? Oh, yeah, I think this is a huge question. There's just there's so many ways. And it's really interesting. This just came up for me recently. A good friend of mine, her dad died and it was very unexpected. She found her dad at home very unexpectedly. And in the several days after and then extending into weeks and into months after she was like, since my dad died, my stomach, I can't my stomach has just been destroyed. Like my digestive system, I don't know what's going on. You know, we were talking about how in a real physiological way, the way the stress response affects the body, one of the first places that it goes is to our digestive system. And all of a sudden people will experience after a, a death, huge issues related to that. They'll huge issues in all sorts of different parts of just physical fatigue and muscle tension where people will say, I have no idea where this came from. And sometimes won't draw that connection between their grief and the way it holds in their body. The first time I ever went to a woman, she's a chiropractor, but she does something that is called a neural emotional technique. And it really looks at how we hold losses in our bodies. When the first time she ever did this on my back, where they really look at tension that comes, that is associated with tension we hold because of stress and trauma and grief. I walked out of her office and I couldn't even believe how my back felt because I was like, I didn't know that I was holding this in my back. I didn't even understand. I wasn't aware that it was there until it was not there. And so I think, you know, there's so many complexities um, in the way that grief 
and all sorts of, you know, if we think of grief, obviously, as both an attachment loss and a stress response affects us physiologically, the big thing that we say to people is just to start paying attention, to really look at those things, to use your own body awareness when things come up, even if it feels like it might not have anything to do with grief at all, to be open to the fact that you're going through this time where physiologically there are so many things going on in your body responding to that stress and to kind of give yourself some grace for it. And then that there are professionals who do a lot around this somatic experiences associated with grief and that it can be helpful to talk to someone. Yeah, Lisa, thank you for that that personal example. I think it's one thing to say like grief affects us on a physical level and it's another thing to give someone like an actual example of what that can look like. And you know, in our groups at Dougie Center, a lot of times the conversation comes up around what kind of body work are people engaging with? Are they going to massage? Are they going to chiropractor? Is their physical activity changing in some way because there is that need to like somatically move the grief around or out or whatever that might look like? Yeah, I think movement in general, I, I know for me, another thing, and, and, and this is just, I think so, it sounds ridiculous to say at this point, because I feel like anytime anybody suggests yoga for anything, I just kind of want to roll my eyes. But truly, I for years tried to do yoga going back to like the 90s when it was hard to find a yoga mat and um, really ever struggled with kind of having, feeling connected to it working. And when I eventually started doing and doing hot yoga for the first time, it like completely changed my relationship with yoga because of, I think, a lot of mind-body connection that can also happen when we find the right physical movement that allows us to quiet our brain down while we're moving our body. And that's for me, I'm, I have ADHD. I really struggle with quieting my brain down, any form of physical movement. I would do try all sorts of different things. It just it never successfully helped me to quiet my brain while like physically moving and doing things that could help ease stress in my body. And I'm not saying hot yoga is for everybody, but for me, it happened to be the thing that allowed me to engage both of those things together. And it was really, really, really transformative in me understanding the important physical relationship too, that just movement can have in terms of releasing some of that grief and stress-related tension that our body holds. Okay, coming up on our last question, it might be a question you don't have an answer to, so you can always say, I pass. But is there a list that didn't make it into the book or that you thought of after you handed the book over to the publishers or a new list that you woke up this morning and was like, this is totally a grief-related list I would like to write? Hmm. I... I don't know. I know things ended up on the cutting room floor, but I don't actually, there's not one that really nags at me. I'm sure. So Lisa and I've talked a lot about this, uh, about how having, we're so used to having stuff online and having something really set in stone, like a book in print gives us a lot of anxiety because we are constantly finding over a decade after our losses that our conceptualization of grief is constantly still changing. You know, as we meet new people and work with new people and have new experiences, 
it's just always changing. So like right now, a couple of weeks after the book's out, I don't have one, but I am 100% certain that if you ask me that in three months, there will be at least one or two lists I don't want in there and one or two that I would add because I just do feel like when I think back to where we started and where we are now, I just feel like our experience and our conceptualization and our understanding of life after loss has just changed so much over the years. And I think that that's true for everybody, whether they work in this field like we do or whether they're just dealing with their own grief experiences and the grief experiences of of the people they know and love. Yeah, the one thing I think I would uh, say is it's it's not a specific list that ended up on the cutting room floor, but I will say we were, I think, really past the end of edits. We were at the very, very end of like layout edits, like everything in March of 2022, when it was officially announced that prolonged grief disorder was added to the DSM-5. And we did cram a a change and edit in there that acknowledged prolonged grief disorder at the very end. But I think if we had had more time and in a different way and and to add a list, I don't know what the list would have been called, but maybe, you know, nine reasons it's dangerous to pathologize grief. Um, You know, something that would really nod to being able to spend a little bit more time. I, I mean, I hope that the whole book is a book that that leaves people saying grief isn't something we should pathologize. It's a normal, natural human response to loss and all of that. But I do think that if that had um, not been literally in like the last, at the, the 11th hour, I would have wanted to have a list in there that more explicitly helped people think about what does it mean to pathologize grief? How could, you know, how do we internalize certain things? How does this affect whether or not we should, we believe we're worthy of getting support if we meet or don't meet a diagnosis? You know, all of that, I think maybe we would have created some space for that. Well, Lisa, I think you just led us into what's going to be the next follow-up Grief Out Loud episode with the two of you talking about the nine dangers of pathologizing grief. I would love to have that conversation. (laughs) That's so true. If if we couldn't get it as a list in the book, I would love for it to be a podcast episode with you. For sure. Stay stay tuned, listeners. We're going to give them a little break because their book just came out and they might need a little moment. Lisa, Eleanor, for listeners who maybe are new to What's Your Grief or new to the two of you are now super interested in finding your book, like, can you give us just a few places where people can go to connect with you? And I'll put these all in the show notes as always, too. Well, our, our website that we talked about in the beginning is www.whatsyourgrief.com. And that is where it's kind of like our, our hub, essentially. And then our book is What's Your Grief List to Help You Through Any Loss. We can't guarantee it's available at your local bookstore. We always, you know, suggest you check there, but we're also available on all of the bigger book um, marketplaces. So you can find us in all those spaces for the book. Uh, And then we always do invite people if they have questions, they are free to email us. And we try to get back to people as quickly as possible at What's Your Grief at gmail.com. Lisa, am I missing anything else that's important to share? No, I think just on social, we're at What's Your Grief in all the regular places. 
Well, Eleanor and Lisa, thank you for coming back for uh, episode number two on Grief Out Loud that you've been a part of. And I will hope one day we'll have episode number three with the two of you, but just appreciating your time today and your book, What's Your Grief? A list to help you through any loss um, at being out in the world and all the work it took to make it happen. So thank you for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, but thank you for tuning in, for making the show mean what it does, for sharing episodes with people who might be interested in or helped by what we are talking about here. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot which is also the website for Dougie Center, where you'll find all the past episodes of Grief Out Loud, all of our downloadable tip sheets, activity sheets, and more information about our local programming. I'm also excited to share with you that Grief Out Loud is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.